As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Countries around the world, but in particular the oil-rich Gulf states, are spending billions of dollars every year to sports stars, largely past their prime, to play in new local leagues they're setting up. These countries are no strangers to lavish and often poorly planned spending, but unlike skyscrapers and giant shapes in the deserts, the economic logic to spending fundamentally limited petrodollars on someone who can kick a ball good is even harder to map out. Sports is a massive industry worldwide. The sporting industry in the USA alone produces more economic output than all but the 70 largest economies in the world, but it's also just entertainment, and it's far from a predictable or reliable industry to build an economy around. Major sporting events like the Olympics and even the World Cup have failed to generate positive economic outcomes for the countries hosting these events. In the case of the most recent World Cup held in Qatar, one of the countries at the centre of this trend, the event mostly tarnished their reputation on the world stage, with controversies over the rights and treatment of the workers that put the events together, and also strict local laws and customs that were incompatible with Western businesses and audiences, particularly those that would be attending football matches. Even countries that have a long history and strong cultural connection towards globally viewed sports like the English Premier League have struggled to maintain teams that are profitable. The Gulf states do need to diversify their economies so they don't become dependent on a limited resource that fluctuates in price every day on global markets, and it's a positive step to see them making efforts towards that goal. But paying billions of dollars over market prices to become the home of sporting events that struggle to make money anywhere is a questionable strategy at best. Realistically, it would make much more sense for that money to be spent on developing other industries that could replace oil and gas long term, or at the very least invested into a sovereign wealth fund that makes low risk investments to provide revenues to the countries into the future. It's difficult for rational outside observers to look at these decisions and think that it's anything other than the proverbial smooth brain dictator that really likes golf, Formula One or football, and is using their unchecked mountains of petrodollars to buy their own personal playthings. Now of course, that is a real possibility. And sometimes the role of an economist becomes justifying the bad decisions of the people in charge with overly generous projections. But there may be a real strategy to these record-breaking contracts, which at least have the potential to make a major impact on these economies during the transition they're inevitably facing over the coming decades. So what is the motivation behind spending billions of dollars to develop a sports league in a country with no history of sports? Could this seemingly reckless spending accelerate the underlying economic problems in these countries? And finally, is there a genuine economic outcome where this public expenditure is justified? Okay, before we get into the economics, or lack thereof, of spending billions of dollars to play sports in the middle of the desert, I want to as always give a big disclaimer, which in this case is that I don't follow any of these sports and I have very little insights into who the best football or stickball or zoomy man really is, and for the sake of the macroeconomic objectives of these decisions, it shouldn't really matter. Anyway, most of the attention recently has been focused around contracts given to football or soccer players from teams in the Saudi Arabian Pro League. Now this isn't a particularly large or well-known league internationally, and it doesn't attract the same viewership or sponsor dollars as better known competitors in Europe or even the US. So the money to pay for these headline grabbing contracts is coming from the Saudi Arabian government. The teams making these offers are majority owned by something called the Public Investment Fund, which is one of Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth funds. A sovereign wealth fund is just a giant investment fund used mostly by oil-rich states to save oil revenues and invest into projects to decrease their economy's reliance on oil. 
The most famous example of such a fund, and one that we've spoken about a lot on this channel before, is Norway's government pension fund, which has received a share of the country's oil revenues from drilling rights and from the country's state-owned oil company. The revenues were reinvested into global markets, and today the country of Norway, home to just 5.4 million people, owns around 1.4% of all globally listed companies. Although, despite its strong performance and immense natural resource revenues, Norway's sovereign wealth fund is no longer the largest in the world. It's been overtaken by France's deposit and consignment fund, which now has over 1.4 trillion US dollars in assets. This deserves a video all its own, so make sure to get subscribed for that one if you aren't already. The Gulf states, in particular Kuwait, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, all have their own sovereign wealth funds, which also, in theory, take oil revenues and use it to invest into the future of the kingdom. But unlike the funds from France, Norway and even China, the Gulf states have been widely criticised for being very opaque with their operations. There is no available information on where these funds get their money from beyond just state oil, and there's also little information about where they invest outside of a few big purchases that attract a lot of attention, like the contracts to these sports people and occasionally entire teams inside and outside of the countries themselves. Yeah, that's right. If their local league doesn't work out in the end, the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia also owns Newcastle United, which plays in the much larger English Premier League. So, what's the logic here? Is there any way that this is a sensible economic strategy? The first explanation is that large sports teams are just businesses in a surprisingly large industry, and investment into these international and domestic teams is no different from regular investment into regular companies like every other sovereign wealth fund does. The only reason that Saudi Arabia or Qatar paying large sums to obtain footballers and golfers is any different from Norway buying shares in Apple is that regular people care more about sports stars and teams than they do about financial securities. And well, also perhaps understandably, people are less comfortable with countries that don't have the best human rights records taking control of beloved national figures. But even ignoring that, sports teams are not fantastic investments. A lot of them are run at a loss by extremely wealthy people who just want to own something they grew up enjoying, and every other team they compete against also comes under pressure to outspend an entity that doesn't care about making any money. They may be businesses like any other, but they are normally bad investments, and the managers of sovereign wealth funds would know that. Fortunately though, when an investment fund and national economy are as closely interconnected as they are in the Gulf states, it might not matter if those returns are received directly through the investment fund itself. The stated goal of these funds is to build national income diversity beyond just resource revenues, and that's best achieved by building local industries. Just like the mega projects these countries are building in the desert don't make sense individually, these sports teams could theoretically at least build a part of a major push for tourists and international business dollars. Newcastle United's largest sponsor is Sela, a company that owns and develops the sports events industry primarily in Saudi Arabia. So even if the team itself never makes any money, the nation of Saudi Arabia will benefit in other ways by building themselves up as a destination for sports fans all over the world. Industries like this attract a lot of employment and require a lot of businesses to accommodate for all of the supporting industries that spring up around it. Realistically, of course, it's still probably the case that the decision makers at the helm of these multi-billion dollar investment funds just really wanted to play pay-to-win real-life FIFA manager. But if nothing else, it does have the potential to work in line with the general strategy of replacing oil revenues with revenues generated from being a regional business and tourist hub. But that will work better for some countries than others, and economic advisors within these countries themselves should at least raise the issue of the Gulf states' other problems. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. People will travel to distant countries to watch their favorite sports people play, and big names may even attract attention to local leagues in the Gulf states, which can in turn be used as a way to show off the country as a genuine tourist and business destination. With the addition of mega projects, low taxes, and a convenient central location, it is an attractive offering to businesses that want to, at the very least, get a cut out of this seemingly reckless spending. And to see how this could play out, we need to look at California. California, as we know it today, really got its start in the gold rush of the mid-1800s. Before then, there wasn't much driving people to an area that was so remote and offered little advantages beyond what could be found in the east of the USA. But as people made the trek to seek out their fortunes, towns sprung up to support the miners, and then cities developed to support the people supporting the miners, and then industries developed that had nothing to do with mining at all. Today, the state of California is one of the largest economies in the world, with an output similar to that of Germany, which itself is a true economic superpower. Now, this type of gold rush in the case of the Gulf states is not going to be for oil. These days, natural resource extraction is handled by multinational corporations using billions of dollars worth of capital equipment, rather than huge groups of men with pickaxes. What the Gulf states are instead in effect doing is creating a man-made gold rush for businesses to set up operations in their country to make their fortunes. Not by digging for gold, but by digging for big state contracts. Already some of these countries have started to develop industries that support the industries supporting the oil industry, and the governments of these states have encouraged this by making investments into things like national airlines, which not only have the potential to generate revenues in a sustainable value-adding industry in their own right, they also effectively force people to stop over in Qatar, Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Even Saudi Arabia, the major Gulf state which has typically been the most insular and geopolitically problematic, has moved ahead with plans to introduce their own national airline to compete with their Gulf state neighbours. Adding sports to the mix will give people another reason to stop over, another reason to host a conference in a country conveniently between two major economic regions, another reason to build hotels, open restaurants and everything else in between. Saudi Arabia in particular is highly unlikely to ever profit directly from these record-breaking sports deals, but in the inevitable race against time that they find themselves in, spending a tiny fraction of their resource revenues on an industry that could speed up their transition to a self-sustaining economy by even just a few years is a gamble worth making. Now, whether this really is the long-term vision of the Saudi government is impossible to say, because again, their spending is not openly reported, and their government doesn't need to answer questions to its people like governments do in the West. But to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that this spending does tie into the grand strategic vision of the country and its economy long term, there are still some major challenges. Lack of public knowledge about the Gulf states is not their biggest problem. They are not some hidden gem that tourists have been missing out on for decades. If anything, the problem is that people know too much about them. Endemic corruption, cronyism, controlled media, appalling migrant workers' rights, the funding of questionable groups around the world, all on top of simply different cultural values to most of the rest of the advanced world means that these countries are often the target of criticism. 
Anybody looking to set up a business in these countries, or move there to work, or simply do an extended layover to enjoy a football game or Formula One race is going to know about these problems. Some people just don't care, and they want a convenient place to stop over on a cost-effective airline where they can stay in a fancy hotel and take photos for the gram in front of the latest oil-funded mega-project. This is especially true for businesses that are quick to put morals aside when there is this much money to be made. But it's also not fair to assume that these countries can't change. California before and during its gold rush was a very rough place. Singapore, which is a model that these states are trying to emulate, was also far from an ideal place for most global industries. It had a lot of the same challenges and a lot of the same problems that these countries do today. Yet, when people think of Singapore, they mostly think of a safe, clean metropolitan city with most people barely stopping to consider its unusual laws or the fact that its government has ruled basically unchallenged for the last 40 years. A bad public image will slow these countries down, but it's not enough to stop these economies from becoming advanced value-adding centres. That's probably a good thing. Closing countries off and refusing to engage with them because of domestic problems will cause isolationism, which long-term is likely to only make the problems worse. Sport, of all things, is a great way to bring people together across borders and perhaps even give opportunities to these countries to be exposed to some healthy criticism. The problems of migrant labour wouldn't have gotten the attention they are currently getting if it wasn't for the World Cup in Qatar, nor would the conflict in Yemen without the Formula One in Saudi Arabia. If these countries want to make these investments work and open up to the world, then they're going to have to address these issues, where the alternative is them hoarding their oil wealth and staying stuck in their old ways. Sure, people may not like them taking away their favourite sports stars, but arguably it's a small price to pay for the potential that these countries become developed members of the modern world. Using sport for this is nothing new. International sporting events have been held in countries with poor human rights records for as long as there have been international sporting events. Up and coming, and yes, it has to be said, authoritarian countries have always used big sporting events to show off their country and their people on a global stage and cover over their underlying problems with big flashy festivities. It's a practice so common it has its own name, sports washing. But in recent decades, this has become even more pronounced thanks to a larger global trend. No economy in the world today can be an island. The only one that comes close is the USA, which still benefits tremendously from global trade, global skills transfers, global investments, and global travel. Countries like the Gulf states, whether they would openly admit it or not, owe all the prosperity they've achieved in recent decades to globalisation. Global skills have let them establish world-class oil extraction facilities, global investments funded it, global trade let them export their energy all over the world, and global migration let them turn that money into big shining cities in the deserts and even let them buy into sports all across the world. So far their international reputation hasn't really mattered because oil is a fungible commodity and most people have no idea where the stuff they put in their car originated from. There are rare instances where natural resource exports can be sanctioned, but countries normally need to make major missteps for that to be an issue. Other global industries are more dependent on this perception though, and as the world is now reassessing complex global supply chains with potential rivals, lines have been drawn across the globe and countries that have benefited from both sides need to maintain the status quo by any means necessary. More people pay attention to sport than they do trade deals and political negotiations. Having exposure to an audience of billions of people can make political backlash against policymakers a very real threat. The cost of these deals may seem crazy to regular people like you or I, but to these countries it's a valuable marketing tool that could help secure the future of their economic prosperity at best, or at worst it's a political insurance policy that costs less than a percent of the money they have saved up from an industry they're trying to buy their way out of. Saudi Arabia may be home to the most profitable company in history, 
But it's still ultimately unsustainable, and it still pales in comparison to the influence of another company in the early years of a truly global economy. We put together an entire video on the Dutch East India Company over on Epic Economics, which you should be able to click to on your screen now. Thanks for watching, mate. Bye. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.